0: Well, let me say welcome again to uh, everyone who's with us this morning, those who are part of the ARC family, those who are soon to be part of the ARC family, those who are just visiting with us this morning. Uh, I'm Pastor T, one of the pastors of the congregation here. And on behalf of the entire family, we want to welcome you again uh, to this time of worship and praise of Christ our Lord. It'll soon be Easter, just a couple of months, and we'll be celebrating the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And just as surely as Easter comes every year, we will have on network television specials dedicated to Jesus. Who is Jesus? Is he really the Jesus that Christians believe he to be, or is he some other kind of figure? And the speculations will begin about not only who is Jesus, but also will continue with what does it look like to follow Jesus? You know, how you follow Jesus. Depends really on what you think you know about it. And no doubt we will have rival interpretations. Sometimes the shows will do a better job than at other times of of sort of telling the the various points of view. Now, one of the problems that always comes with this is every point of view is at least treated as equal, and some are are privileged, aren't they? Usually the privileged points of view have very little to do with the Jesus revealed to us in the Bible. And so this morning, we want to continue our series called Getting to Know Jesus. It's a series that we've been in through the Gospel of Luke. And just as that simple little title suggests, what we want to do in these times of studying Luke's Gospel is we want to get to know Jesus as he reveals himself in the Gospel. Not as scholars argue about him. Not as television producers present him to us. We want to get to know him as he presents himself, as he tells us about himself in his word. And as we do that, we're going to discover something, that a clear understanding of who Jesus is has a profound effect on how we worship him. In fact, one of the characters that you'll meet in the gospel and meet in our passage this morning, we've already seen them in the gospel of Luke, are the Pharisees and the scribes. Remember, these are, these are two parties in ancient Judaism uh, that were pretty significant in the shape and the worship of Judaism. The Pharisees were the Bible guys, they, they were the equivalent of the sort of Old Testament fundamentalists. They loved the Bible, they believed in miracles, and, and they were pretty strict about the Bible and observing and obeying the Bible. In fact, they loved their rules. The scribes were the teachers of the law. They had the role of of teaching God's word to God's people, and and they're often together in cahoots, the scribes and the Pharisees. And as I was thinking about this passage this morning in Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 33, a question came to me. Why are the scribes and the Pharisees so often mentioned in the Gospels? They get a lot of real estate in the Gospels, don't they? And one answer, of course, is obvious. They They are the ones who oppose Jesus. So they're they're the major villains in the story, so to speak. And they're the ones who lead to Jesus' crucifixion, humanly speaking. But I think there's another reason. I think the other reason the Pharisees and the scribes are given so much real estate in the Gospels is because we're a lot like them. The Pharisees and the scribes are us. At least the temptations to become Pharisees. Is common to us all. And that temptation manifests itself first in slightly wrong thoughts, and even radically wrong thoughts, about who Jesus is and how to follow Him. So look with me in Luke chapter 5, verses 33. Down in Luke chapter 6, verse 11. If you're new to the Bibles, when I say the chapter number, that's the big number on the page. When I say the verse number, that's the small number. Anybody need a Bible this morning? I think we have a couple in the back that we can, we can share. Anyone need a Bible? Show of hands. A brother in the side here. Brother here. Dave, you need to start bringing your Bible, brother. All right. <laughs> All right. Anybody else up front? <laughs> you last. All right. Excellent. Luke chapter 5, he brought you a big old heavy 200-pound ESV, didn't he? Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 33. This is God's Word. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the old will not match, or the new, excuse me, will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, The new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. On the Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath To do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Three questions for us to consider this morning on the nature of Christian worship and that worship which is pleasing to God, that worship which flows from a right understanding, we pray, of who Jesus is. First question, should we fast and pray or eat and drink? That's a question that's raised there in Luke chapter 5, verses 33 to 39. Should we fast and pray or eat and drink? Second question Do we obey the law or serve the Son? Do we obey the law or serve the Son? Third question Should we do good and save or harm and destroy? Should we do good and save or harm and destroy? As we consider Luke chapter 5 and 6 this morning, I pray that the Lord himself would cure the Pharisee in us all. Question number one, should we fast and pray or eat and drink? Verse 33 of our text continues with the scene that started really in verse 27. We considered that last week. Remember, Jesus calls a man named Levi to come and follow him. Levi was a tax collector. He leaves everything at the tax collecting booth and he follows Jesus. And in the joy of discovering Jesus and entering into the discipleship of our Lord, you remember what he does. He throws a house party. And he invites over to his house all of his tax collector friends. And the text says in verse 39, and a great company of others. Now you remember, sitting there at his table are also some scribes and Pharisees who are looking at Jesus saying to himself, this man eats with sinners, right? Never mind, they're in the room too. This man eats with sinners, Well, the scene continues in verse 33, and the disciples now have gone from grumbling against Jesus about eating with sinners and asking him that question, they've gone on to make a statement now, verse 33, and they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink they continue to think that Jesus is attending this dinner party is a scandal and irreligious. The comment kind of assumes, doesn't it, that abstaining from eating and drinking is better than partaking. The comment illustrates that the scribes and the Pharisees are are religious ascetics. Ascetics are people, as someone who believes you must avoid all forms of indulgence and pleasure as an act of self-discipline, particularly in religious matters. The ascetic believes that this makes you godlier and that it pleases God. They think that that avoiding of pleasure and the severe treatment of the body is the way to holiness. Now, in that way, the Pharisees also seem to assume that religion is not about joy. They're suspicious of joy. There's something about happiness that sort of causes them to raise an eyebrow or furrow a brow. Religion, in their view, isn't supposed to make you happy. It's supposed to make you holy. And those two things, happiness and holiness, in their mind, seem to stand at odds with each other. Happiness, in fact, in their mind, gets in the way of religious devotion. For, for them, asceticism is better than joy. But now, what, on what basis, did you notice in verse 33? On what basis do they seem to believe this? Notice that they rest their argument on the authority of their own example and tradition. You you see how the argument comes? It says, John's disciples fast and pray. The Pharisees' disciples fast and pray. So why don't your disciples do it? Their their comment and their way of thinking is really self-righteous, isn't it? They don't cite any scripture. They don't have any text. They they cite their own authority, the example of the authority that comes from their own example. Because we do this, and we think this is holy. Why aren't your people doing this, and why don't your people think this is holy? See, the first step in becoming a self-righteous religious Pharisee is using your personal religious example as a requirement for everyone else to obey. question is, what does Jesus think about all of this? We're trying to get to know our Lord and trying to get to know how he thinks and feels about things. The Lord gives a a two-part reply to this. Look there in verses 34 and 35. And Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Our Lord uses a, a wedding analogy. The ancient Jewish uh, wedding custom had three broad parts. First was the, the contracts where the father of the groom went to the father of the intended bride and they negotiated a bride price and negotiated the marriage. Still happens in many parts of the world today. Well, that, that contract would effectively be a marriage, though, though the couple would not live together. That would then begin this long period, uh, this indefinite period of time, where the bridegroom would have to go away, usually back to his father's house, and prepare a home for his bride. He couldn't go and get his bride until his father told him that he was ready. And when that happened, he, he made his way to his bride's house, and there would usually be a caller who went out before him who would cry out something like, make way for the bridegroom. The, the, the wife, the intended, would have been at home. She would have been preparing as well, not knowing when the day or the hour would come. And you can see why the Lord uses this parable in so many ways. Aren't you? Not knowing when the day or the hour would come. We hear the announcement, make ready for the bridegroom. The bridegroom would come, and that would begin the second phase of the marriage, the celebration, which would last about seven days. Seven days of eating and drinking, music and dance. I think it's to this that the Lord refers to in verse 35 when he says, when the bridegroom is present people don't fast. That's the time of celebration. This long-awaited time where the bridegroom would come and receive his bride has finally come to pass. Well, you don't put on a dour face, and you don't put on uh, your your robes and, and get all religious. You celebrate. Christ is saying, for as long as I'm with my people, it's time not to fast, but to celebrate. And so this is the first part of his answer. And what Jesus is saying to those who have ears to hear is following him is about joy. It's about delight. It's about gladness. It's about feasting. It's about the the, the great and sumptuous uh, meal that the Lord spreads in front of his people for us to partake in. Following Jesus is all about joy. To discover who he is as Savior and Lord is to find your highest happiness. It is to find the deepest joy. It's to enter a celebration far longer than seven days. One that is eternal without end. And Jesus teaches about the gospel in in so many words, in, in precisely this way. So you may remember Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, where Jesus is there giving a whole list of parables about the kingdom. And remember what he says there? He says the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field then he describes this man. A man found it, and then he did an interesting thing. You Remember, he covered it up. Why? He then goes, the text says, joy, and sells everything he has to buy that field. The kingdom of heaven is like that. It's like finding a treasure which, which you really can't afford. So you give up everything you have to enter into this kingdom and enter into this joy that God gives you in this kingdom. The very kingdom is like that. Christ is like that. To be a Christian is to be someone who has discovered, finally, the fountain of joy. And it's Christ. And when you're with him, you celebrate. You celebrate. That's the first part of his answer. The second part of his answer is in verses 36 to 39. He tells them a parable. The Lord compares this situation to a new garment and new wine. Really, in telling this parable, he's he's saying in so many words that a new era has come. There's a significant change in in the administration of of God's saving purposes in the world. He says it's like going to the mall and buying a new dress or buying a new pair of pants and a shirt. And you come home with your new bag, your, your Macy's bag or wherever you shop, Abercrombie. You open the bag and... You throw the receipt aside, you pull out this new garment, and, and what do you do? Now, if you're like me, when you come home with something new, you try it on again, because it might have shrunk between the mall and home. <laughs> so you try it on again, make sure it still fit, and you hang it up, and you're thinking about that day you're going to wear it, Right? It'd be ridiculous to come home with that brand new shirt, that brand new pair of pants, and you say, you know what? I just need a square off this pants or this blouse. I'm going to cut it off here, and I got this old raggedy shirt for which this will make a great patch. That's ridiculous. And Jesus is saying, listen... Trying to follow me, trying to understand who I am while thinking in the old categories of the law and thinking in the old categories of Israel is like taking that brand new shirt, cutting it up, and using it as a patch for some old garment you had. Or it's like new wine in in old wineskins. He tells us here in the text that if you put new wine in old wineskins, the wineskins burst and the wine is spilled. But if you try to take Christ, Category-bursting Christ, world-changing Jesus, mind-altering Savior. If you try to take this one who is infinite in all of his perfections and you try to squeeze him in the boxes of man-made religion, he will burst the wineskin and the wine of Christ itself will be spilled and lost to you. This is why Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, that if you turn back to the law, Christ is of no benefit to you. He says, if you have started out to follow Christ and you turn back to the law, then in effect, you have fallen away from grace. No, Christ comes into the world and he brings a salvation and he brings a a way of saving sinners so radically different from anything that we've expected. We had better not try to put it in a box we understand, but rather accept this Christ as he presents himself. Let him rearrange the the chairs in our thinking. Let him rearrange our affections. Let him reorder our thoughts and our practices that they might be more and more in in keeping with his grace and his salvation. So he comes and he tells them, a new era has began. It's not the old era of the Mosaic law. It's not the old era or the man-made religion of asceticism and and, and self-imposed restrictions and, and the beating of the body as if that makes you holy. Now, this is the era of grace. This is the era of a free salvation given by faith in Christ. Beloved, we cannot have the gospel with just a little bit of touch of law and legalism. We cannot have the law with just a few ounces of Jesus poured in. The gospel's an entirely different garment. One whole brand new piece unto itself. The gospel requires fresh wineskins for the fresh wine that it brings. And verse 39, we had better be careful which wine we like. It says in verse 39, those who drink the old religion of self-righteousness, they get a taste for the old wine. They say it's good. They like it. There's something about legalism and self-righteousness which is natural to us. The native language of fallen man is the law. And we taste it and we sip it and we say the old wine is good and we're tempted to cling to it and not accept this new vintage, this new wine, which is altogether different. So maybe you're here this morning and you've been thinking about God and you've been thinking about worshiping God. And you've been thinking about how to do that. Maybe you've been developing your own rules, rules for that. This text and all the Bible screams out to you, don't develop rules for self-righteousness. You will not earn your way to God's favor. You can't pray enough. You can't fast enough. You can't do any religious thing enough in order to satisfy the perfect requirements of God. What you can do is repent of your self-righteousness. What you can do is repent of your good deeds. For even our best deeds, they have mixed with them our sin, our fallenness. We do good things all the time, and many times with mixed motive. I'm going to take the trash out for her so she can just leave me alone and watch the game. You know, I'm going to cook this meal for him that he really likes because I saw this dress that I like. And on and on it goes. Our righteousness is not to be trusted. It's too weak. There's too many faults in it. There's too many imperfections in it. We will not be able to build a ladder of righteousness that reaches to the heavens. No, we have to abandon our sin and abandon our righteousness too so that we can embrace the righteousness of another, namely the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ who obeyed God perfectly where we failed Him, and who in obedience to the law, to satisfy the law, gave Himself as a sacrifice for us to pay the penalty of our sin. It's in that penalty payment and that righteousness offering of Christ that sinners that we are, we are reconciled to God, forgiven, forgiven, And we begin to learn how to worship God in a way that pleases Him. And we begin to follow Jesus in a way that Jesus recognizes. So, let's be careful how we hear God's Word taught. Particularly as Christians, let's be careful of how we hold others to our example of how we hold others to our practices. It's easy to think that an application of God's Word appropriate to us or a practice that has served us in some period of our life uh, ought to be followed by everyone else. It's easy to slide over to the authority of our own example while thinking it's the authority of Scripture. We're being Pharisees when we do that. So let me offer a, a simple lesson here in the application of Scripture. There are necessary applications, there are possible applications, and there are impossible applications. Necessary, possible, impossible. The necessary applications are the things that absolutely follow from the Bible itself, from the text of Scripture itself, that everyone has to obey. So the Bible says, thou shalt not murder, where there is no instance in which murder is permissible, right? So thou shalt not murder falls upon us all. But then there are also possible applications. So the Bible says, thou shalt not covet, for example. Don't covet anything that's your neighbor's. Don't covet anything that's your neighbor's wife. Don't covet anything. And so I may say, listen, uh, moving back to the States, we we didn't have a television and Moving back to the states, we're now back to commercial land, and uh, I've seen all these commercials, and I'm a little bit like my son. He, he discovered commercials when we moved back stateside, and he was like, Mom, you, you've got to get these Ginsu knives, man, because they come with a, a guarantee, and then you get this give, and he's running down the commercials. Like, no, son, that's we, we're not going to make it if you think that way, you know. And so I may say, thou shalt not covet, and so I'm not going to watch commercials, right? That's a possible application. It's a legitimate application for me. Now, Phariseeism begins when I take that possible application and I make it a necessary application for everyone else. And we say things like, Christians ought not be very wary. The next thing that comes is really important. It's either a necessary application, in which case there's book, chapter, and verse, or someone taking a possible application and trying to bind our conscience to their own practice. And so we say things like, Christians ought not ever watch commercials. Give me book, chapter, verse. We can't. So as Christians with one another, we want to learn to enjoy our freedom with each other and to have our consciences bound not by the preferences and the practices of other brothers and sisters in Christ, but to have our consciences bound by that one thing that legitimately can do it, God's Word. And so the Lord frees us from from Phariseeism by binding us to his word. So, brings us to our second question. Do we obey the law or serve the son? The thing about Pharisees is they don't give up easily. They tend to show up again and again, especially around religious things, right? So, verses 1 and 2, look there of chapter 6. On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain rubbing them in their hands but some of the pharisees said why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the sabbath now get this get this picture in your head right the verse says they're going through grain fields this means they weren't exactly in the center of town out in some field somewhere and they plucked and ate enough to rub in their hands so they weren't exactly out there farming you know, with big reapers, and it wouldn't have been easy to see what they were doing as they walked through grain about this high, I suppose, right? But the Pharisees know that they have plucked a couple ears of, of grain and rubbed it in their hands. Now, you ask yourself the question, how do Pharisees know that? How do you know that? They're spying on him and his disciples, aren't they? They're looking for a way to trap him. You know you've been a Pharisee when you start inspecting grain, right? Next time you come to church, somebody say, let me see your hands. You, you know, go on, put your hands in your pockets, that's all right. We're good, though. We're good, we good. I'm going over here with the real Christians. But they raised their concern in verse 2. Notice, why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now, notice they have switched from the authority of their own example to what they think is the authority of the Scripture. The Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. It would have been in Israel a, a, a day that God commanded for all of his people to observe. It's patterned on the days of creation. Six days, God did his work in creating the world, and on the seventh day, he rested. And so God creates this, this shrine in time, not a shrine in place, but in time, this hallowing of, um, of time such that people can stop their labor and meet with him worship him. And so Israel is commanded to observe this uh, always. And as we heard Joe read for us uh, in our reading this morning, uh, in the Old Testament, that breaking the Sabbath by working on the Sabbath and things of that sort, that required the death penalty in Israel. Now, you might might well understand that if God said to you, if anybody works on this day, put him to death, you might want to know what God means by work. And so faithful Jewish persons, Pharisees, being serious about the word, they began to give definition as to what constituted work. You couldn't walk but so far, or that was work. You couldn't light a fire in your home on the Sabbath, that was work. Couldn't cook on the Sabbath, that was work. You see, pretty soon, it's almost impossible to keep the Sabbath. So walking through a field and plucking a couple ears of grain, well, in their mind, was work. I have worked for someone here. Driving a black Camry with Virginia tags, you're blocking a neighbor's garage. Black Camry, Virginia tags, blocking a neighbor's garage. I'm going to go on with the next point, and you can sneak out quietly. Okay? <laughs> so they, they are developing all these rules with regard to work. Now, in verse 2, their question seems to spring from this sense of keeping the Sabbath and uh, the Sabbath regulations being important for God's people. But their sense of keeping the Sabbath is stronger than their sense of meeting human needs. In this case, hunger. They elevate the law over people. And in doing so, they become hard toward people and indifferent toward needs. They don't understand what God's word says in Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. Jesus quotes this twice in Matthew's gospel to him. He says, I desire mercy rather than sacrifice. They are precisely the opposite. They want people to sacrifice in obedience to the law rather than seek mercy. And here there's a second step in becoming a religious Pharisee. Make our religious rules more important than Jesus himself. Let's make our religious rules more important than Jesus himself. And we see that they do that because they really want Jesus to submit to their rules. They want Jesus to bring himself under their law. And notice the Lord's response in verses 3 to 5. He seems again to give them two answers. First answer very simply is, he has not broken the law. The Pharisees charge him with that, and the Lord's first reply is that simple. I have not broken the law. He says it in these words in verses uh, 3 and 4. Jesus answered them: have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any, but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those with him. It's referring back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. David's on the run from King Saul. David's been anointed by God to be the king of Israel, but Saul has a throne. He was the one chosen by the people. And you remember, Saul develops this murderous anger, this jealousy toward David, and he is looking in his madness to put David to death. And David is on the run, having been warned by Saul's son, Jonathan, that my dad's going to try to kill you. And he and some of his men are on the run, and they run to the temple, and they're hungry, and they're without weapons, and they're without supply. And he asks the priest in the temple what he has to eat. the priest says, I don't have anything but the bread of presence. This is a bread that God had commanded Israel to make in their worship, to keep fresh before uh, before his presence. It was a bread that only the priest could eat when that bread would be rotated. No man apart from the priesthood could take this bread. And yet the priest says to David, if you guys are holy, if you've been abstaining, you may have this bread. And David takes the bread and his men and they eat. And nowhere is David condemned or punished or rebuked in the scripture for doing this. And notice how Jesus looks at the Old Testament narrative as applicable to his circumstance that day. Those things were written for our example but well, maybe the scribes are thinking to themselves, listen, when David did that, that wasn't the Sabbath. That was a different day of the week, and David came to the temple as sort of unusual circumstances. So, yeah, that would be a natural retort. I love the way Matthew adds a detail to this. So if you keep your finger in Luke, turn over to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew is telling us this very same incident. And Matthew tells us a little bit more about what Jesus said on that day. Jesus went on to give another biblical example as to why what he was doing was not sin. Matthew chapter 12, look there in verse 5. Jesus says, Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, someone greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. You ever, you ever wondered to yourself, if God forbids work on the Sabbath, how does he regard the priests who are working and making offerings on the Sabbath? I mean, the holiest men, the representatives of God's holiness before the people and the representative of the people before God, they're working the whole day. And yet it's not sin. And this is what Jesus means. Have you ever thought about the fact that in that sense, the priests profane the Sabbath, every Sabbath, making offering, doing their work, and yet they are guiltless before God? And then Matthew adds this. I tell you, one greater than the temple is here. Which is right next to the statement that he makes at the end of Luke's version of this when he says that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. What they don't yet see as they're looking to try and trap Jesus is that Jesus is greater than their law. He is not meant to submit to their law. He is, in fact, Lord over the law. When he says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, what does that mean? Well, the Sabbath, along with the rest of the law, is under his feet. He's the Lord of it. And what can that mean? Except that he's the one who gave it. I mean, here you have this explosive statement, this indication that Jesus is God. The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's not servant to it. He's the one who gave it. He's the one who owns it. And he's the one who's guiltless before it. And the second part of his, his answer, or that is the second part of his answer, really, is that he is the, he's the owner of it, Luke 6, 5. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He, he rules it. The Sabbath was given by him with a particular purpose. And it's Mark who gives us that detail. So all of the synoptic writers give this, us this account, and all of them bring out a slightly different thing in this exchange. And Mark adds this in Mark 2, 27. He says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. They are serving the law, the Sabbath law, but the law was meant to serve them. It was meant to protect them from overwork. It was meant to protect them from the idolatry of work. It was meant to protect them from the the sort of routine that, that regularly forgets about God and to remind them for a full day at the least that God was their God and they were his people. The Sabbath was given by God in order to refresh the souls of men, to to refresh their bodies, and to do that specifically by having them rest in the Lord, having them to meet with the Lord and to worship Him and discover afresh His mercy and His goodness and His love. How kind of God to dedicate an entire day for us to do nothing but know Him, to meet with Him, to enjoy Him, to find ourselves refreshed by him. And this is why good worship is never exhausting. Good praise of God leaves you what? Filled, energized, ready. And this is why not protecting the Lord's day is such a self-harm. We busy ourselves with work that we bring home or we go back to the office or we busy ourselves with all kinds of worldly pursuits, which may not be wrong in and of themselves, but they're not the best things. The best thing is what Martha discovered, or Mary discovered, sitting at the Lord's feet, hearing His voice, being refreshed by His presence. So our statement of faith calls us to, Hallow this day, to make this day holy, to keep this day, not as an act of legalistic righteousness but as a sweet opportunity to repair and to refresh our souls with our Lord. Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He has set an appointment on our calendars for us to come and to meet with Him. Jesus here is the lawgiver. And it's interesting that the lawgiver, did you notice this? Did not come to demand that we obey the law, which is what makes Pharisee, Phariseeism all the more odious. Uh, the Pharisee demands that you keep the law when even the lawkeeper himself doesn't demand it, or the lawgiver himself doesn't demand it. Instead, what are we told? Matthew chapter five verse 17? Jesus says, "I have not come to abolish the law; I have come to fulfill the law." He's come that every jot and tittle would be fulfilled, not by us, but by him in our place. Every demand that God has of us, every righteous requirement God has established for us, Jesus has fulfilled, even the keeping of the Sabbath, so that the writer of Hebrews could tell us that here's the real Sabbath. The real Sabbath is ceasing from your work of self-righteousness and in faith, trusting God and entering into that rest that does not end. That the Sabbath, like all of the rest of the law, prophesies about the coming of Christ and prophesies about a coming rest. And that rest isn't merely the seventh day. That rest is eternity. But we have rested finally from our war with sin. We have rested finally from our struggle to live righteously. And we have entered into that rest which Christ has purchased by his blood. And there we flourish without effort. Trusting In the Christ who purchased us. This is the Sabbath. And if you believe in Christ, you have already entered that rest. And you have began to taste that rest. And one day, that rest will come in its fullness when Christ comes to gather his bride. Should we obey the law or serve the Son? Oh, beloved, serve the Son and find rest for your soul. Our third and final question. Ought we to do good and save, or ought we to harm and destroy? See that there in verses 6 through 11. There we have one more encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees. Excuse me. And the Pharisees. And notice again, verse 6 is on another Sabbath, right? On this Sabbath, no, Jesus is in the synagogue and he's teaching. Verse 6 says, there's a man there with a right hand that has withered. Verse 7 says, the scribes and the Pharisees are up to their old tricks. right. They watched him, Jesus, to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so they might find reason to accuse him. Can I say a word to skeptics among us this morning? You're doubtful of Jesus and the claims about Jesus. You're doubtful about Christianity. You're you're skeptical about it. Notice that the scribes and the Pharisees represent your position. Right? I think God has kindly included them in the gospel narratives, not only so that those of us who believe might be on guard against becoming self-righteous Pharisees, but that those who do not believe might be on guard for a prejudicial view against Jesus. Notice, they watch Jesus, not to find evidence that would lead them to Jesus, but to find something to accuse Jesus with. Consider this now. They are literally in the synagogue, in the house of God, on a day of worship, hearing the word of God taught, and they are literally looking for a miracle. A miracle that they know he can do. Not so that they can believe in him, but so that they can reject him. I'm a recovering psychologist by education and training. And we call this in the social sciences a confirmation bias. A confirmation bias is when no matter what evidence you are given to the contrary of your position, you always interpret it to affirm your position. You know, so I, I come in, and, and my position is I have on a red shirt. Christy takes a picture and says, no, it's blue. I said, no, 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 the lights in here are kind of funny. It's red. You know, pretty soon Matt comes in and says, that's a nice blue shirt. And I said, well, you know, most men are colorblind. That's probably why you think it's blue. It's red. And no matter what's said and what evidence to the contrary, somebody stands me in front of a mirror, and I said, well, maybe I'm colorblind because I'm sure it's red. No matter what evidence is presented, you only interpret it to confirm your bias. That's what's happening with the Pharisees. And that, friends, is what many of my skeptical friends are guilty of. doesn't matter what you present them, they have another question. They have another doubt. They have another reason for rejecting it and confirming their initial bias. See, when we're operating with a confirmation bias, we're not really adjusting our thinking according to the evidence. We're rearranging the evidence to support our thinking that's not honest thinking. If you're skeptical of Jesus this morning, beware of this kind of bias. It, it will blind you just as it blinded the Pharisees and the scribes. Don't, don't be like these guys. See the evidence. See the, see the litany of evidence that's developing uh, in the canon of Scripture. Let it speak for itself, that evidence, and then follow the evidence wherever it leads. Can I give you a tip? Pay particular attention to doing this, to following the evidence, wherever it leads, wherever the evidence makes you to feel most threatened or unsure. Normally what happens is the evidence comes, we don't like it, it challenges us, and so we wall off, right? And we find a way to deflect it. No, that's the place to listen to the evidence most. Where it causes some insecurity and disturbs our bias. Because that's when being an honest person will matter most and help us to find the truth. Verse 8. But Jesus knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And the Lord has a wonderful sense of drama, doesn't he? He knows how to take a scene and sort of ratchet it up a couple of knots. Now, he knew what they thought. He could have just let it go, right? He could have went outside with the man and said, come here, man. I'm going I'm to heal your hand outside. I don't want no drama in the synagogue. You know, them, them haters going to hate. So let, let's go out here and let me do what I do and we'll be all right just between me and you, right? But well, Jesus knows what he's thinking. He's looking around at the people. He's like, hey, man, come here. Stand right here. People are looking at him and he knows they're waiting to see if he's going to hear his he stick your hand out there. Everybody's looking at this man's withered hand. as they are looking at his withered hand. I don't know if it was gradual or if it was instant, but what was dry and prunish began to puff and swell with life and became fleshly and usable and powerful. Jesus healed this man's hands right before their eyes. And he asked this question, verse 9. I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? To save life or to destroy life? There's no reply to that, is it? It's a kind of rhetorical question that's meant to be, the answers are meant to be obvious, aren't it? And, and it's so obvious that, that you might ask yourself, why would anyone have any problem with someone being healed on the Sabbath? You now begin to see the Pharisees' initial position as as ridiculous the way it is, isn't it? I mean, healing is good. Healing relieves suffering. Healing restores the body. All of us, when we're sick, we want to be healed, don't we? So Jesus is asking, what is it about your understanding of the Sabbath? What is it about your understanding of worshiping God? What is it about your understanding of, the, of this holy day that presents you, prevents you from wanting to see good done to people? From wanting to see people blessed? Here's the third step in becoming a Pharisee. The scribes and Pharisees seem to assume their religious rules for the Sabbath, are more important than the need of the people worshiping on the Sabbath. Their rules become more important than life itself. So our Lord's question begins to adjust their thinking and, and our thinking too, doesn't it? I mean, consider how Jesus is thinking here in verse 9. What, what must be the assumptions here, the, questions that, the assumptions the question makes here? That, that very simply, doing harm to anyone is not lawful. It's not right to hurt somebody. That's, 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 that's one-on-one, isn't that basic, isn't it? Number two, destroying life is not lawful. It's not wrong to, to take life. But here's what I also think is implicit in this. It is always the right time to do good and to save life. It is always the right time to do what is right, to do what is good, and to save life even in the middle of religious worship services. These simple statements seem obvious, don't they? But our religious rules and our biases can blind us to the obvious, beloved. We might put it this way. To, do, to not do good or save life when you can is, in fact, to do harm and destroy life. There's no neutrality here. Not in the worship of Jesus and not in the model that, that Jesus sits here. There's, there's, there's no way for us to say, okay, while I'm at church, I can't help nobody. Because I'm at church. I'm, you know, I'm trying to meet with Jesus and, and to hear from Jesus and, and, and get my worship on. So the brother that just came in who's hungry, he's going to have to wait there after the service. Or the sister just came in with a limp. You know I, know, I know we got stuff in the aisle, but she's going to have to make her way around it. You know? Or, or far more pressing, pressing examples. As Christians who follow the Lord, we cannot be silent about the plight of the unborn because we're going to worship. As if there's a way to worship that calls a timeout on saving life. Some Christians don't like politics in their sermons, and I understand that politics is divisive, but some politics isn't really politics. It's death and life. It's truth and falsehood. So how appropriate when you see Jesus in the synagogue, healing a man's hand, restoring his life, asking the question, if it's good to do right and to restore life or save life on the, on the Sabbath, how appropriate on the Christian Sabbath that we have some time to say, oh God, would you end abortion? Would you save life? Or as Matt prayed this morning, movingly, oh God, would you, would you end, would you end Any circumstance where children are abducted and taken. End children's faces on milk cartons. End amber alerts. Save life. A wonderfully appropriate thing for the people of God to pray. Not as a matter of politics, but as a matter of people who serve a Savior who saves life. As Christians, we cannot avoid developing a Christian view of Black Lives Matter because Black Lives Matter. And we can't say don't talk about that because you need to preach the gospel as if the gospel has nothing to do with saving life. As if Jesus is interested in our souls, but not our bodies. As if he's interested in our eternality, which he is, but not in our temporality, our our time right here and right now. He is. And sometimes the saving of this life is necessary for the saving of the soul. We don't have to sign off on everything that comes under the banner of Black Lives Matter anymore. We have to sign off on everything that comes under the banner of the pro life movement. We don't support abortion clinic shootings. We're saving life, not taking them. And we don't accept riots and things of that sort under the banner of Black Lives Matter. We are interested in the saving of life as a Christian obligation and responsibility, as a way of following Jesus, our Lord, as a way of bringing into being, into place, the gospel. There's no contradiction in that, beloved. Not one ounce. But we are religious Pharisees. We say things like, you can't talk about that because you need to be preaching the gospel. As if I, in an hour sermon, I can't do two of those things? I got a patient congregation. We can get to it all. And truth be told, you can do it in 15 seconds. You can both quote John 3:16. And say, therefore, we believe in the sanctity of life, all life, in almost no time. It's only the Pharisee who thinks that can't be done. Because they have a rule about what you can or can't do in the gathering. And that rule sometimes isn't very well attached to the scripture. Look at our Lord. His example. He came not to harm, but to save. He came The first time, not to judge, but to give his life as a ransom for us. He is a Savior who understands mercy is greater than sacrifice. He is a Savior who understands that his own mercy would take the form of a sacrifice. And that anyone who would believe in a Savior who gave himself to be crucified for sin and raised from the grave on the third day would find mercy with that Savior would find life with him, would find forgiveness of sins with him, and would enter into life that is truly life. This is our Jesus. If we get to know him, he's going to take us to some uncomfortable places. If we get to know him, he's going to rearrange our thinking and our religious practice. He's going to teach us to forget ourselves and any hope, of righteousness of our own. And he's going to teach us to forget our self-made religion and rules and to live in the freedom that he gives. And he's going to teach us how to live righteously, to do good and not harm, and to save life rather than destroy it. Becoming a Pharisee is easy. Require everyone to follow our personal religious example and judge them when they don't. Make our religious rules more important than Jesus himself. And make our religious rules more important than the well-being of others. Becoming a Christian is even easier. Confess your sins. Believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And the rest of life will be a glorious adventure in seeing and savoring the beauty of Christ. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for Jesus, our Savior, and what you have been trying to show us of him in your word. Oh, Lord, remove the scale from our eyes. Break up the stony parts in our hearts. Lord, we pray that you would challenge our preconceived notions that have become for us sometimes as authoritative as your word. Help us to recognize in the right ways that you're doing new things in Christ. Uh, He have broken all the old categories of man-made religion and self-imposed rules. Those things are not profitable. They do not subdue the flesh. They do not bring the righteousness that you require. At best, they are but a shadow, but Christ is the substance. Christ is the body. Grant that we will lay hold to Christ more deeply and we will follow him where he leads us. Give us wisdom and discernment with our own hearts. Give us wisdom and discernment in our fellowship with others. Give us wisdom and discernment in our engagement with the world that we might bear faithful witness and Christ might be rightly exalted and sinners might be brought to know him and discover the joy of his salvation, the fellowship of his love, the greatness of his glory. This we will do if you help us, if you give us grace. In Jesus' name. Amen.